We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, looking at verses 11 through 17. Well, in uh, 1521, the recently designated Holy Roman Emperor Charles V summoned a saucy monk named Martin Luther to the city of Worms, Germany, to stand trial before a tribunal of church authorities. And stacks of Luther's writings were placed on a table before the tribunal, writings that challenged the authority of the Pope. Uh, argued that the biblical understanding of salvation was by faith alone and charged the church with marketing forgiveness through the sale of indulgences. Uh, Luther had answered the summons. He expected to, to have a debate, but he quickly realized after he got there that uh, he had not been called to, to have a debate so much as he had been called there to, be, to officially recant what he had been teaching. And so he was asked before this council two questions. First, he was asked, are these your writings? And will you recant what you have written? Now, realizing that his life was on the line, Luther asked for a day, uh, understandably, uh, to think about it. But the next day, when the council had been reconvened, uh, Luther answered them simply, saying, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this matter, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Powerful words. Words that have remained active uh, and been celebrated uh, ever since they were uttered. But you can imagine that as Luther uh, uttered these words of defiance to the will of the council, it was not well received. Um, he was condemned uh, by the council as a heretic, and though he was granted safe passage back to his home in Wittenberg, uh, a hefty reward was placed on his head. And on the way home, he was actually kidnapped by his friends and housed in a castle at Wartburg, uh, where he spent his time uh, in isolation translating the Bible into German. <clears throat> Finally, uh, the common man had access to God's word in his native tongue. And so when Luther emerged back into the public sphere about eight months later, Germany had actually been radically changed. Luther's defiance to the will of the council had been uh, driven by the, his conviction in the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. And he credited scripture for the radical change that happened in his native land. He said, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor had ever afflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Luther was convinced of the power and of the authority of God's word. God's self-revelation. He entrusted his life and the future of the church to it, and he was not disappointed. The power of God's word is vital evidence of the truthfulness of our faith. 
Christianity is not the summation of human conclusions. It is a faith that responds to the power of the living God, which who has revealed himself in his word. It is, as B.B. Warfield eloquently puts it, not the product of man's search after God, but as the creation in men of the gracious God, forming a people for himself, that they may show forth his praise. The biblical Christianity is distinct because it is built on God's revelation of himself through Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews one, uh, the author of Hebrews says in chapter one, verses one through two, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So the the Christian faith then stands on the authority of the revelation of Jesus Christ and on His Word. That's the only way this can be good news. That's the only way we can know that it's worth trusting our souls to this. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ establishes his exclusive authority as the exclusive object of our eternal hope. So this morning, we're looking at the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we know that we can trust this message? How do we know that we won't be ultimately disappointed in the end? How do we know that there's not a different gospel that we should be believing rather than this? These were questions that were being asked by the churches in Galatia. Their confidence had been shaken by certain false teachers who had come in and challenged the authority of this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are important questions to be asked, and they're questions that we want to receive the answers from our passage today. Paul wrote this letter in response to those questions with the goal of calling the church to a pure and undefiled gospel of grace. And he appealed to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the authority for why we can trust this message. Hope must stand on this conviction that the gospel is true, because we have received it through God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, which is recorded now for us in his holy, his holy word. So let's begin uh, this morning by reading our text. We'll be reading from Galatians chapter 1, and we'll, I'll be reading verses 11 through 17. So if you would, turn in your Bibles there as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and even tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, when it comes to faith, We want to know that the thing we're trusting in is reliable. There's something powerful 
uh, and, and encouraging about hearing another person talk about their personal experience with the power of the gospel and, and the, the power of God's grace. When Paul wrote about his experience with Christ on the road to Damascus, he certainly intended to encourage the Galatian churches. But he also wanted them to know about the reality and the reliability and the authority of the message of the gospel of grace that he had first preached to them. We must remember as we look at this passage that Paul wrote these words to churches that were under assault, who were being pressured by outside forces to abandon the sufficiency of Jesus to adopt a distorted gospel, a gospel that placed the burden of earning God's favor on their shoulders. In the course of that battle, the men troubling the churches in Galatia tried to undermine the gospel of grace, and they tried to undermine uh, Paul's authority by questioning his motives. Now, Paul, as we know from his other writings, was not one to brag on his accolades or his accomplishments. But he was always glad to talk about the power of Christ's cross and how it had changed him. And that's where we are in the beginning of this letter. This is Paul's account of how God saved him and set him apart to serve as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there are two main reasons why Paul tells this story. First, he wanted to answer these allegations that were being made against him, uh, that he preached a watered-down gospel and because he was a man-pleaser. Second, Paul wanted the Galatians to know that the message he preached to them was authoritative, ultimately because it was from God himself. And so that brings us to consider the main idea of our text and the main idea of this sermon, which is simply this, that this is God's gospel. The gospel of the grace of Christ is God's gospel. And we know that it is God's gospel for two main reasons, which Paul outlines here. First, we know that it's God's gospel because we've received it through his own son. We know it's God's gospel because of we have received it through his own son. So therefore, we have confidence in the source. Secondly, uh, we, we, we know this is God's gospel because we ourselves, if we're believers, have been radically transformed by it. We've been radically transformed by it. So we have experienced the evidence of the power of this message. So in our time this morning, I want to expand on these two ideas and uh, as we look at how this gospel is God's gospel. So first we want to look at how uh, the, we know that this gospel is authoritative and trustworthy because of the source, because we've received it through Jesus Christ. In the greeting of this letter, if you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul said that he was, he called himself an apostle or a sent one. And then in verse 10, he calls himself a servant or a slave of Christ. When you put these two titles together, you get a really accurate picture of the way Paul viewed his life and his calling. As an apostle, Paul had, commissioned, had, had been commissioned to be an ambassador, an emissary, a proclaimer of, good, of the good news of salvation to the world. As Christ's servant, he had one goal, the goal of exalting Jesus as the Messiah through the preaching of the gospel in all the world. Now, this was an office that he did not appoint himself to. He had not been selected by a committee of his peers. He had instead received his commission from God the Father through God the Son, and he had been equipped for this task through uh, God the Holy Spirit as he worked through him. The churches in Galatia were struggling 
to accept Paul's apostleship. And so they were also uh, struggling to accept his gospel. Their confidence in him and in this message had been shaken violently by false allegations that were being made by men who had come into the church after him. Despite all of his frustration in this situation, we see the depth of Paul's love for the church and his zeal for the fame of Christ shining out in these words here. Rather than breaking out in anger, rather and rather than cutting off, uh, cutting his losses and just cutting this troubling church, this fickle church, just out of his life and moving on, Paul actually lowers and lowers himself and puts himself on trial to show the authentic the authenticity of the message that he had preached to them. As an apostle of Christ, Paul had been commissioned to preach the gospel of the cross. His job was to preach a message that he himself had received from Jesus. He preached an authentic message, not something that he had just received from other people or in a, a conclusion that he had arrived, in his, uh, arrived to in his own personal study. But instead, we see as we look at verses 11 through 12, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when I was in seminary and when I was in college, I wrote a lot of papers. Uh, when you're writing an academic paper, you have to include sources because it is impressed upon you very early that as a student, you really are not an authority on anything. You may think you are. Your opinion may carry a lot of weight with you and maybe even the people you run around with. But in an academic paper, if you're going to prove a point, you have to show uh, that the authority for what you're saying is beyond you. If you're trying to prove a point, you have to start with facts. And those facts have to be authenticated by other sources. None of my professors would have ever accepted a paper from me if it did not have a, a, a stout bibliography to account for where I got my information from. When Paul came preaching the good news of Jesus to the Galatians, he didn't come to them as an innovator. He didn't come to them preaching his own opinions. He had authority to say what he said that didn't come from himself. It came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The authenticating feature of Paul's apostolic office and his apostolic message was that he had received them from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Getting the gospel wrong has terrible, eternal consequences. We saw that in verses 8 through 9 where Paul had said that anyone who preached or received a different gospel was accursed, that they were putting themselves in the way of God's just wrath. Why did he say that? Because any gospel that departs from the gospel of the cross, which Paul and the other apostles preached, is really a departure from Christ himself. That's why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. He did not want the churches in Galatia to follow the siren song that was being sung by these false teachers who were trying to lead them away from a true, authentic gospel which the, which the Galatians had first received from Paul, to receive another gospel that really meant to enslave them under works of the Mosaic law and the curse of its judgment. Paul wanted the Galatians to know that the gospel they had received from him was authentic. And so he tells them, Brothers, I would have you know that the gospel I preached wasn't man's gospel. I, I didn't receive it from any mere man, and I didn't learn it in a school. 
Rather, I received it through a revelation, the appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, the revelation that Paul is referring to here isn't just this aha moment that Paul had, like a little light bulb all of a sudden went off above his head. No, it's not, and it's not even just that the gospel just one day made sense to Paul. Now, the revelation that Paul has in mind here refers to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ actually appeared to Paul and changed his life forever. Now, we know that's the case because uh, we, when we compare what Paul writes about here to Acts 9, we see where, where Luke records uh, Paul's conversion, we see uh, these facts played out a little bit more. Paul uh, had, had been on his way to the city of Damascus. Uh, at that point in his life, he was an enemy of Christ. He was an enemy of the church. He was an enemy of the gospel that he defends in the letter of Galatians. He was on the road, actually, with a letter of authority from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that gave him power to arrest any follower of Jesus. And as he was coming near the city, we're told in Acts 9 that in the middle of the day, a great light shone around him, so bright, so beautiful, that it knocked him to the ground. And then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When he responded and said, Who are you, Lord? The voice answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, jumping back to what Paul was uh, writing to the Galatian church here, when he says he received this gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, his eyes were opened. And he no longer saw Jesus and the gospel as an enemy of God's law, but rather as the fulfillment of it. After Jesus appeared to him in his regal splendor, Paul then accepted Jesus as the Christ and received the gospel of grace for himself with all of its beauty. As a persecutor of the church, Paul would have obviously been familiar with the gospel that the other apostles were proclaiming, but the message he preached on his conversion, he credits to God alone. He says that God revealed it to him through Jesus' appearing to him. In saying that he did not receive this gospel from any man, nor through the traditions of man, Paul is emphasizing that the message he was, that he preached uh, to the Galatians and throughout the Roman Empire was a message that stood on the authority and on the commission of King Jesus and God the Father. The authority of the message that Paul preached matters. It matters because it confirms the truth of what he said. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have any time for human-based gospels. I don't care about them. They are weak. They are flimsy. They change to fit the times. The gospel, this gospel that Paul preached, doesn't change. It it stands in the midst of a changing world, unchanged like a rock in the midst of a, of a river. It doesn't change because it's not man's gospel. It's not a man-made truth. It's, it doesn't stand on the authority of the one who preaches it. It stands rather on the revelation of Jesus Christ. It stands on his life. It stands on his death. It stands on his resurrection. And it stands and declares his enduring kingship. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul did not appeal to his own authority for the gospel that he preached. He appealed to the authority of his king. He viewed himself merely as a messenger, as an ambassador, 
just as he wrote to the church in Corinth when he said, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Then he says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The reason we cannot afford to accept another message is because no other message has been revealed by God through Jesus and his spirit to us by which men and women are called to be saved. The message of the gospel doesn't stand on the authority of the teachings of the church. It doesn't stand on our ability to reason our way to it. It stands on the revelation of Christ and on the authority of his revealed word, the Bible. Paul didn't want the Galatians to think that the gospel he preached originated from him. He wanted them to know that he had received it as a measure of God's grace to him from Christ. And so he wanted them, therefore, to remain in that gospel of grace because apart from it, there is no deliverance from hell and from sin. There's a battle in our world today, and it's a battle that's always been there. It's not new. And it's a battle over truth. Jesus' desire for his church when he prays in John 17, verses 17 through 21, is that we, that his church, would be sanctified, that we would be made holy in the truth. That's why he prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we accept the Bible as the sole authority of faith and in practice because of what Jesus prayed. God's word is truth, and therefore it is authoritative, and therefore it is trustworthy. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We stand on the word of God. We stand on the revelation of Christ that has been recounted to us by faithful teachers and preachers and ambassadors like Paul. It's important in this battle over truth that the church secures itself in the light of Christ. He entered this world, the word of God made flesh, and with him has entered life and light. We know truth when we know Christ. And so this gospel matters. This message matters. It matters that this uh, is a message that has been received from God through him. It matters that the Holy Spirit is at work, empowering God's holy word to work in our lives. 
We don't have hope in another message than this because only the gospel of the cross is able to transform us and only the gospel of the cross has authority to ground us and to transform us and to sanctify us, to make us holy like him. Our faith stands on the conviction and on the confidence that we have in the revelation, in the appearance of Jesus Christ, even as we wait for the time when he will appear finally and fully in his glory as the king of all. So we know this gospel is true because it's a gospel that, that isn't a, con, a human construction, but rather is, is given to us by the self-revelation of God himself. But we also know that this gospel is true, that this is God's gospel because of the way that we have experienced this a radical transformation by it. So we know what it is, we can accept it because of the authority of what it is, but that authority is something that we experience uh, when we're united to him by faith. In, in Paul's defense of the authority of the message that he had received from Jesus when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Paul then puts himself forward as a physical example of the effectiveness of this message. In verses 13 through 17, Paul recounts how he was rescued from being an enemy of Christ and an enemy of his church. This is Paul's testimony, and he actually goes so far as to present it as evidence to the Galatians of the power and the authority of the message that he had preached to them. In verses 13 through 14, Paul talks about his former life as a Pharisee. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and even tried to destroy it. He says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So there was a time in Paul's life where he equated zeal for the law of Moses and for the ancestral teachings of the Pharisees with zeal for God and his holiness. Paul never ceased to be a Jew, but he does talk about his time in Judaism as a part of his former, a prior part of his life, something he had left. The term Judaism here in verse 13 describes a commitment to Jewish beliefs, practices, and traditions according to the law of Moses and the teachings of the Torah. <coughs> Paul's commitment to Judaism defined his life before Christ. He was zealous for the law. What's more, he was really zealous for the teachings of the elders. He saw Christ and the grace, the gospel of grace, and the church as a threat to all of that, and so he sought to destroy it. In his ignorance, Paul thought that he was doing God a favor, that he was actually defending God's holiness, that he was defending God from this wayward sect that was trying to draw people away to follow a false Messiah. To Paul, his zeal for the traditions of his fathers seemed to be a great act of passion for God's name. But in fact, we find that it was his greatest act of sin against God because it was a rejection of the cross of Christ. The objections of the false teachers to, in, in Galatia uh, to Paul's apostolic authority and the message he preached really starts to fall flat when you think about the history of who Paul was. During his time in Judaism, there was not a man who was more zealous about the law uh, than Paul was. But Paul abandoned all of that when Jesus revealed himself on the road to Damascus. God rescued Paul 
out of a zeal for the law and put in him instead a zeal for Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was even born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles or among the nations, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, as we read about the transformation Paul went through, we have to ask, how do you ex explain how a person who's breathing threats and hatred towards Christ and his church, counting, turning then to count it his greatest pleasure in life to preach the gospel of Christ to Gentiles? How do you explain that radical transformation? Well, Paul only had one explanation. God saved him through his gospel of grace. That's the only thing that Paul will allow anyone to credit the transformation that happened to him. Now, there are a couple features about Paul's conversion and then about his commission to serve as an apostle that really stand out and indicate that the gospel he preached was really true, that it was really this powerful message that he said it was. First of all, the first evidence of this is that we have Paul's radical transformation. Now, people change over time, but they don't change like this unless something really powerful or someone really powerful works on them in a powerful way. Paul was a dedicated Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But his zeal for the law was misplaced. He was lost in sin and he didn't even know it. He was his own savior and he was a failure because of it. He was dead and he didn't know it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us and with which he loved Paul, even while Paul was dead in his sins, made him alive together with Christ. He jerked Paul out of a false zeal with tremendous force. He literally knocked him to the ground. And in that moment when Jesus revealed himself to Paul, Paul saw for the first time the insufficiency of the law to save him. He saw that he needed a savior besides himself. He saw that his only hope was the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. God saved him. He transformed him. He removed the stony heart of Paul that Paul had under the law, and he replaced it with a living heart, one that beat for Christ. When Paul talks about his conversion here in verse 15, he talks about it actually the same way that he described the Galatians and how they themselves had come to faith. God had set him apart before he, had, he was even born, and then at the appointed time, he had called Paul out of the darkness of his sin out of his self-righteousness, into the light of Christ. That experience, that radical transformation, isn't something that was exclusive to Paul. It's a miracle that every believer experiences when they come to faith in Christ. If you are a believer, then your relationship to God has come about because of his effective call, his astonishing love, and his determination to exalt Christ by revealing him to you through the preaching of the gospel. That's a miracle that should never be lost on us. If there's anything significant about who we are, it's this. That we've received mercy and grace through Christ. 
and that we've been called out of sin and out of death into life and into life, light in him. The same mighty work that wrenched Paul out of his false zeal and out of his hatred for Jesus is the same mighty work that has been performed in everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted the grace of God in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation and repented of your sins, then you know, you can know, and you have experienced the same act of grace which God did in Paul. I am so encouraged by the way that Paul calls these Galatians his brothers, even as, they're, even as he's appealing to them not to, to fall prey to this false gospel. We all feel the weakness of our sin. We know how seductive it is, how seductive it is to fall into a false gospel. And yet we know from this that the grace of God is stronger and the call of Christ is greater and we truly do have hope in him. God, Paul, God called Paul into grace unconditionally. If there was ever a person who would seem to be undeserving of the gospel of Christ, wouldn't it be Paul? Doesn't Paul call himself the least of the apostles and the greatest of sinners? And yet, look at how God worked in him and through him to take him from being a self-righteous zealot to being a man on fire for Jesus Christ. That takes power. And that's the power of the gospel of the cross of Christ. No one is beyond the reach of this message of grace. In 1644, Baptists in London got together and they produced a statement about their faith. And what they said uh, then captures, I think, uh, a bit of the experience of what Paul experienced and what we have experienced if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. They said that faith, without respect to any power or capacity in the creature, but is wholly passive, being dead in sins and trespasses, doth believe, and is converted by no less power than that which raised Christ from the dead. As sinners, we may be zealous against God, or we may be indifferent to Him. But when God calls us to Himself, when He applies the work of Jesus to us and raises us with Him in the power and in the truth of the gospel of the cross, we experience the very same power which raised Jesus from the dead. Paul experienced that power when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. If you're a believer, then you've experienced that too. And so you know from your own experience that this message really is true, that it's trustworthy, and that while there may be other things that are appealing about other messages, nothing can beat this because nothing is true like this. Nothing has power like this. Nothing is so worthy of our hope and of our joy. If you're on here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't deserve God's mercy, I'm too great of a sinner, then take heart from Paul's testimony. He was a murderer. He was a hater of Christ. And yet when God opened his eyes to see the truth and the glory of who Jesus is, he himself came to experience the power of the cross. Now the second feature of Paul's conversion and of his calling which demonstrates the truthfulness of this message comes in verse 17 when Paul talks about how he preached this message uh, with authority. Paul says that God 
had set him apart and called him by his grace to this this role, this this office of apostleship. Now, what was unique about his calling is how he is how God called this Jew of Jews to go and then to preach the gospel of peace to the nations, to Gentiles. Now, Paul did not do this to the exclusion of the Jewish people. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that it was his practice uh, to go and to preach the gospel in the synagogue first to whatever city he came to. But Paul had been called in a special, to a special ministry among the Gentiles. And the only way I can explain that uh, is that Paul's calling and his commission was from God. What makes it even more interesting and amazing and, and, and what adds even more evidence, I think, to Paul's experience is that Paul didn't wait for approval to go and to preach this gospel. You can read about how in Acts 9, uh, that when Paul had gone up to Damascus, that rather than persecuting the church, instead he started preaching the very gospel he had come to try to silence, and he preached it in the synagogue. In the, the second part of verse 16, he says that he did not wait to consult anyone about this message, that he did not go up to Jerusalem and meet with the other apostles. Instead, he jumped straight into the work, preaching both in Damascus and in Arabia. The fact that Paul started preaching the good news straight after Jesus had been revealed to him uh, in, in is, is something that is, I think go, is shocking enough about his transformation. But if you add, that, add to that... Uh, the fact that his message and what he preached matched the very same message that was being preached by the rest of the apostles, as we see in Galatians 2, verses 9 through 10, you really see how Paul's message and how his office really were authentic. You don't just intuitively understand all the doctrines of the cross. Paul and, and Paul did not reason his way to this conclusion or into this message. He hadn't received it from any man or from any teacher. He really had received it through the revelation of Jesus. So as we're reading about Paul's account of his transformation, we can already see how the objections of these false teachers uh, to Paul and to his message are really melting away. Paul has yet more to say about his experience as an apostle of Jesus, which we'll, we'll get to next week and then the week after. Uh, for now, though, I want to just wrap up our time with a few considerations and applications about the way God works in the lives of his people through this gospel of grace. First, as a church, we need to see that we need to secure ourselves in the reality that the gospel we've been called to preach and to proclaim isn't fundamentally our message. It's been given to us by God. And he has commissioned us to take that to our neighbors, to our community, and really to our state, to our nation, to the world. That means that this is true. And it means that we have authority outside of ourselves that vindicates us when we share the truth with others. You and I have no authority in and of ourselves to tell anyone about what they should believe. But we have been called to tell others about what Christ has done and the authority of our call to come and to believe this and to abandon all, all hope in anything else comes from the God who has breathed out this universe, who is exalted in the heavens and in the earth. We have been commissioned to make our appeal to everyone, to call them to repent of their sin and to come to Christ who is Lord over all. 
We do not bear an authority that is our own. We bear an authority that is the king's. Remembering that we speak not on our own authority or because of our own knowledge or because of our own skill, but in the authority uh, that we've received from Christ and that we've been called to preach a message that we have received from him. When we remember that, I think it gives us strength and confidence and boldness to go wherever we've been called to go and to serve with love people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. We know the King. He saved us. And we want others to experience the love and the joy that we found in Him. That relationship with Jesus should be so profound in your life that even when you just introduce yourself to someone new, the first thing they should be able to tell about you is that you love your king because he loves you and he's revealed himself to you through his word by the Holy Spirit. There is nothing about you that is more important than that. When we remember how the king called us, We won't be ashamed to call others to come and find refuge in him. Secondly, we need to be careful about falling into zeal over the wrong things. Paul loved the law of Moses and he loved the traditions of the elders. He was zealous for them, but his zeal was misplaced. And so he misunderstood the law and its relationship to Christ. And that misunderstanding led him to hate Christ and his people. He approved of their murder and their imprisonment. It is good to be zealous for what is right, but it's only good if that zeal flows from a zeal for King Jesus. Be careful then that your zeal for something does not overbalance gospel-centered living. Be careful about evaluating the faithfulness of your fellow brother or your fellow sister on the basis of your zeal for a particular area of obedience. You, uh, we, we may pollute ourselves with pride as easily as we may slip into any other sort of disobedience. And while it's easy to recognize pride uh, and pridefulness in others, it's not always so easy to recognize it in ourselves. So we are called to live exercising a certain amount of Christian charity towards a fellow brother or sister. And I think that's an important uh, fruit uh, of of the gospel, which ought to be in our lives. God's patience towards us must cause us to be patient and understanding towards others, even as we hold the line and defend the truthfulness of this message. The third thing we want to see is that we are called to rest in the extraordinary power of the gospel of the cross of Jesus. Rest in the power of this message. Paul's hatred for the church and for Christ was so strong, no one believed that he could be really saved. After Jesus had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he instructed Paul to go into the city, after which he said he would receive word on what to do. Meanwhile, we're told uh, in Acts 9 that Jesus had appeared to Ananias, one of the Christians who was living in Damascus, one of those very people Paul had come with authority to arrest and imprison. When the Lord came to Ananias, he told Paul, he told him to find Paul and told him where he would find him and informed him that Paul had been blinded by the light he had seen on the road. Then he instructed Ananias to go and to lay hands on him so that Paul would then regain his sight. 
Now, understandably, Ananias responded with astonishment. He said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But God sent Ananias anyway, and he told him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The power of this gospel, the gospel of grace, is stronger than the blackest sin and the worst sinner because the sacrifice of Christ is more excellent than they are wicked. There may be many sins of which a man cannot speak, Spurgeon remarks, but there is no sin which Christ cannot wash away. Let us, therefore, regard no one according to the weakness of their flesh, but only view them through the power of the gospel of Christ. I have such confidence in this. I know that this is true, because we've received this from Christ himself, and I know that it is true because I've tasted it myself, and I have found and can speak from experience that it is sweeter and it is more breathtaking in what I have experienced than what was ever described to me before I was a believer. I hope that you have that too. If you have tasted, if you have seen the sweetness of the gospel of the grace of Christ, then you know this message is a message we can trust. And you know that this is a message that is powerful enough to raise dead hearts to be to walk in newness of life with Him. That is an authority that we can trust. And it's something we must entrust ourselves to. Isn't it good to be reminded about the authority of the gospel we've been called to? Isn't it good to be reminded that the darkest night cannot quench the light of Christ? Let us pray that God will give us the strength and the courage to share this message with others. And let us pray that He would work powerfully through this gospel in others as He has in us. Praise be to God for His gospel of grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so easy to be distracted by other things that call for our attention. And yet this message is the message that has defined your church and defines us. Lord, we have set the seal of our hope to this. We have tasted and we have seen that you are good. We have heard the authority of your word. You have revealed yourself to us through your spirit and your word. We have received this message of Christ and ask that you would sanctify us in his truth that the world would know and believe that he truly is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and would be reconciled to you and your grace. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes that are fresh to see and to hope in this message of truth and that we would be bold to share this with our neighbors glad to share this with our neighbors as we call them and beckon them to come and find the riches that we ourselves have been given in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name, by his grace. Amen.
Well, I hope that you'll sing loudly again uh, this morning as we respond to what we've read in Galatians uh, and as we sing together uh, and can't. All I have is Christ.